The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high-adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exists to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of Scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. Amen. Y'all turn your Bibles to Acts 4. We're going to pick the story up where we left it off last night. And it is a cool story about a pretty cool cat that, uh, that I'm excited to, to continue. So I'm going to dive right in. Okay, we're going to jump right in. So we, we left the story off where, remember this guy that couldn't walk, had been healed by the power of the Lord through the disciples. And the disciples were named Peter and John. Okay, so this guy who's never been able to walk, 40 years, and now he can walk. And so he's running around, he's going crazy, he's celebrating, he's, he's jumping up and down. And it draws a crowd, and so people come over to see what's going on. And when people come over to see what's going on, Peter and John use that opportunity to then explain to everybody about Jesus. And there's a good lesson there for us where we need to be looking in our lives for opportunities to share Jesus with people. One of my favorite stories to tell about this is, uh, and it's cool, I had a conversation with Tim, one of the youth pastors last night, he was telling a story about sharing Jesus with some police officers through a crazy thing that happened, and he got the opportunity, and you got to be looking for these opportunities. I was, I was flying back from, I'd been preaching at a missions conference, and this was in, uh, I think it was in Fort Myers, Florida, and I was flying from Fort Myers to Atlanta, and I preached, I'd preached at Snowbird at our college event, then I drove to Atlanta, then I flew to Fort Myers, then I preached several times and I flew back. I was under, it was just like a crazy schedule. I was really tired and I got stuck at the airport because it was a real bad storm, maybe like a hurricane or something. I don't remember, but we, I sat in the airport for like four hours and it was hot. I don't know how people live down there, man. I do not know how people live down there. Um, and I know we have people from Florida here and I love to go visit, but it is hot and I am not a hot weather person. And so, um, sit there, hot, muggy. This is this is, there's so many people, this is before the COVID stuff, there's so many people in there, finally get to get on the airplane, and usually when I get on the airplane, I'll say, okay, Lord, will you help me have an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody, let me talk to somebody about Jesus, uh, I did not pray that this day, I'm just going to be honest with you, I, I was grumpy, I was tired, I was hungry, it was just, I didn't, I just wanted to get on my flight and get home, so I get on the plane, and I sit down beside this guy, and he engages me in conversation, which is rare. Usually people on airplanes don't want to talk to you. So usually you've got to kind of get them talking. So I, so I start talking to this dude. He starts talking to me. He's like 27 years old. He works for Amazon. He's like a young executive type dude. Um, graduated from a prestigious university. Had been in Seattle. Then he's moved to Atlanta to work Amazon. I don't know what I was doing. Anyway, dude's not a believer, okay? Doesn't follow Jesus. So I share the gospel with him. It's like an hour flight from Fort Myers to Atlanta, an hour and a half maybe. So I share the gospel with this guy. So long story short, this guy comes to Snowbird to visit. He's like 27 and single. He comes to Snowbird to visit and see the ministry. He comes on a, the, in, the, in the winter. We have this retreat called Pure and Holy. It's all about like pure sexual purity and like it's geared towards teenagers. This 27-year-old dude that's like made money living in the world is like, sitting in the back row for this whole event. He stays for the whole thing. At the end of that weekend, that dude, he comes up to me and he's like, man, I want to follow Jesus. He gives his life to Jesus. Well, about several months later, 
I get a call from some random number, and it's this dude's dad. He said, man, me and his mom have been praying for him since he was like 15, 16, when he would not embrace Christianity. And we've prayed that God would put somebody in his path that would share the gospel. And you met him on this airplane, on this flight. And we wouldn't have been on that flight if, if the storm hadn't have come, and it hadn't have been delayed, and it hadn't changed my flight, and it hadn't done this, and it hadn't have blah, 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 whatever. But this dude gets saved, and it just was this really, it's been this really refreshed, like this, this new and fresh reminder to me that the power of the gospel saves people. Like Jesus saves people. That's what he does. And, but we have to be, we need to be willing to tell people about Jesus. We need to be willing to take opportunities, situations, circumstances to be able to share Jesus with people. We're living in a, in a society right now that's just so chaotic and crazy. Like, it's nuts in America right now. It's crazy. But it's always been crazy. In different parts of the world, the church has always flourished and thrived in difficulty. And so these guys have got this big crowd around them. And they say, here's an opportunity for us to share the gospel, tell people about Jesus. So that's exactly what they do. So in the, the, the second part of Acts 3, which we didn't really go through last night, Peter preaches the gospel. He preaches the gospel. So let's go to Acts 4 and begin in verse 1. He's just finished preaching. It says, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Now, who are, the, who are these guys? Well, these dudes are like, religious leaders so they're sort of like politicians sort of like legal guardians like uh, judges almost and sort of like priests and pastors but we don't really have anything exactly like this in our society so it's kind of hard but basically they had a lot of authority and the authority they had was connected to the religion so we don't see this so much in America but there are places you can go in the world where religious control and government control are kind of together you you follow what i'm saying does that make sense so like an islamic state is a place where where islam is in control not just as a religion but so there's there's a lot of power with people like that so peter and john preaching the gospel these guys come up who have the authority to put them in jail and they say hey what's going on here and they're, they're kind of confronting them in the middle of this so another lesson if you preach the gospel and share Jesus, you can expect there's going to be conflict. Okay, there will be conflict. If you take a stand for Jesus, there's going to be conflict. Verse 2, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So let's pause right here and look at a couple of things. So these guys were greatly annoyed at the disciples, and it tells us three reasons why they were annoyed. Okay, three reasons in verse 2. Number one, and we have to go to verse 13 to really get clarity on this. Look in verse 13. Now, when they saw Peter, the, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So the first reason they were annoyed is because these guys were not qualified to teach and preach in the temple. They didn't have authority. They hadn't been to their seminaries and their colleges and their universities. These dudes were like blue collar. Y'all know what blue collar is? These guys hadn't been to college, hadn't been to seminary. They worked for a living with their hands. They were fishermen. They were, they were blue-collar dudes. And now they're standing in front of thousands of people preaching the gospel at, on the steps of the church. Okay? So these priests and leaders and religious people, this was sort of like their domain. You know what I'm saying? Like this was their place. And here come these, these knucklehead fishermen, and they're like, this miracle happens and they start preaching Jesus 
And these guys are like, oh, oh heck no. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. They 5,000 people. These dudes couldn't get people to come to church. People are like, yeah, I go to church because I have to. It's a religious society. But nobody wanted to listen to these dudes. These dudes are like just old codgers, you know. They're like just old farts that were grumpy and nasty and ugly and controlling, and they were manipulative and abusive, and they emotionally abused people, and they spiritually abused people, and they needed to be confronted. And the gospel sometimes is confrontational. The gospel sometimes is confrontational. Peter and John down on the front steps, right down there on the stage, platform, whatever, and they're preaching, and thousands of people come up and are listening. These guys are jealous because these guys are experts in the law. Their education would have been like if you went to, let's say, any of y'all dual enrolled? Any dual enrolled people? Okay, quite a few. All right, so let's say these guys graduated from high school. They already had their two-year associate's degree. Then they got their four-year degree within a year or two out of high school. Then they went to grad school. Let's say they went to law school. Then they went to seminary, which is like a training school for um, people that are going to go into ministry. And they got their doctorate, their PhD. They're very educated. Well, Peter and John went to school till like they were 12 or 13. That's in the Jewish system. When you're 12, 13 years old, you would either go on to higher education or you go to work. Some of y'all were like, that is legit. That's dope. Like if I could be done at 13, praise Jesus, sign me up, let's go fishing. Amen? Anybody? Okay. Yeah, just me and a few. Okay. All right. So I got some friends here. All right, good. So these guys are like uneducated, and they're like, but they're up there preaching. And as they're preaching, they're preaching with this boldness and this authority. It's really, it's a powerful moment. So these guys are greatly annoyed, which some people, it's just fun to annoy them. You know what I'm saying? Some people, it's just fun to annoy. These guys are like hoity-toity religious fanatics, and they're just annoyed because they were insulted by these guys standing up there and preaching. Second reason they're greatly annoyed is that what makes this worse is that the people are actually listening to them. So these dudes, these fishermen are up there preaching, and all the people start gathering around to hear what they've got to say. They're like, hmm, that's pretty interesting. Oh, I never heard anything like this. Oh, the religious leaders in the temple, they tell us to do this and this and this and this, and maybe God will approve of you. These guys are saying, no, just receive Jesus and be saved. This sounds way better, right? If I told you, you can work really hard, try to be righteous enough and good enough, and obey God's law perfectly. And if you can do that, then maybe you'll get to go to heaven. Or if I could say, no, you don't have to do any of that. You have to put your faith and your trust in Jesus, confess him as Lord, repent of your sin, and receive the free gift of salvation, and he'll make it happen. Isn't that way better? Yeah, that's way better. B. A. B. Let's go with B, right? So these guys are preaching B. They're saying the real gospel, the real message of salvation is just to believe in Jesus. It's not about, y'all listen, people got this idea that like if you can be religious enough, you go to church enough, you, you like win God over, it doesn't work like that. Jesus has done that. Jesus has, Jesus has perfectly provided a way. And so these guys are like, hey, just follow Jesus. So, so here's, the, here's basically what happens. These religious leaders, they stand up there week in and week out, and they say, give enough money to us, and you might can go to heaven. Say enough prayers, you might can go to heaven. Let us control your lives, you might can go to heaven. We'll let you know if you're doing okay. So it's very controlling. Y'all tracking with me? Then these dudes are like, Fishermen, they come up and they're like, Woo, ding, like, believe Jesus and be saved. Woo, and what, like, that's it. That's the message. Like, Jesus has done it all. There's a hymn we sing when I was a kid in my grandma's church. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. 
Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus washes your sin away. Like you don't be good enough to get Jesus to be like, yeah, that kid's legit. I'm going to save him. He's so good, man. No, it's not like that. Jesus is like, I love you. I'm going to save you because I have the authority and the power to do it. Well, these guys didn't like that message. They didn't like it. And the third reason they were annoyed is because the message that these guys preach is all about Jesus. If you go back and you read the second half of Acts 3, they're like, Jesus came to this world. Jesus was crucified unjustly by you guys. They're pointing like at this crowd, like you killed Jesus, but Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus is God. Jesus is an authority. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of your Old Testament writings. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Well, these dudes hate Jesus. If you know, they're the ones that actually killed Jesus. So let's pause and think about this. Peter and John are preaching about Jesus. These religious leaders are the people who killed Jesus. Why did they kill Jesus? They wanted to eliminate him because he was a threat to their system. Isn't that crazy? They're like, we don't like him. Let's kill him. That's evil in the heart right there, isn't it? Like, that's a dark heart. And so Peter and John stand up and say, okay, these guys that y'all have let, let you, like, you've let them control your lives long enough. These guys that are in control and in charge, they killed Jesus, but he didn't stay dead. So no matter how you look at it, Jesus wins. He came back to life. He conquered death. Well, these guys are mad about that. They're like, we've got to do something with these guys. Verse 3. Y'all with me? You're a little bit quiet this morning. I'm not using a lot of humor this morning. It's not really a funny story. So y'all got to, we, we can do this. With me? All right. Verse 3. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. They arrested them because they're preaching. So they arrest them, they take them to jail, they put them in custody. That's, and that's, it's funny because that's all that they could come up with. It's like, what are we going to do with these guys? So they arrest them, which is interesting because if you remember the night that Jesus was arrested, Peter denied Jesus so that he wouldn't get arrested. What's happened is Peter has seen the risen Lord, and now he's much more brave with the gospel. When you, when you trust in Jesus, he gives you the boldness and the courage that you need, and Peter's got it. Verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Okay, this is pretty cool. 5,000 people got saved that day. 5,000. That's crazy. You ever watch Billy Graham crusade? Have you ever heard of Billy Graham? I, I like to watch Billy Graham events on YouTube. He died not long ago. And anytime somebody that's like a great, uh, like giant of the faith or whatever, I get kind of obsessed with going back and YouTube's, you know, it's kind of spoiled us because it got all this old content. And so Billy Graham was a great preacher and evangelist. He went around the world. People think that millions came to faith because of him. We go watch, like he would stand up there and preach and it'd be like in a soccer stadium somewhere in England or a rugby stadium in South Africa. And he would preach. There'd be 75, 80,000 people there. And then he would say, come and trust Jesus. And like a few thousand people would walk down there to trust Jesus. Amazing to see God move like that. Well, that. These guys, they see 5,000 people. So they preach the gospel. These dudes come and arrest them and haul them off. And then 5,000 people in that crowd say, okay, I want, I want some of what they're selling right there, like what they got. And they're like, we ain't selling it. We're giving away. The gift of salvation is free. Trust in Jesus. 5,000 people say, I want to follow Jesus. It's a big deal that that many people come to faith in Jesus at one time. Now, I want to give you uh, something to think about right here at verse 4. Gospel opposition will never stop the advance of the gospel. 
Now listen, young people, I want you to hear this. If you're a note taker, write it down and believe it. You're going to need to hang on to this truth in the next 20 years as you move into adulthood in our society. Gospel opposition will never stop the advance of the gospel. In other words, when people try to say, you can't preach Jesus, you can't pray in schools, you can't push your faith and your beliefs out in front of everyone, like you can't, you can't use the gospel as a guiding, like just when people oppose that, just understand that's normal and it'll never stop the advance of the gospel. In fact, it tends to accelerate the advance of the gospel. In other words, when the gospel of Jesus Christ is opposed, it tends to be more effective and impact more people. What that means is we don't have to be scared of a government that might impose laws on us that say you cannot preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I travel and preach a lot. I was talking to my youngest son a couple days ago, and he says, uh, it was funny. So they did, I was telling some of the girls uh, from over here this morning, um, they did like a mock election in his classroom. Well, all I told him about, like, I'm not into politics. I just don't get into it. And so, but I vote and I, you know, want my kids to understand, like, you have a role that you get to play in the process. And so you should be excited about that. So they're in class. They do a mock election. There's like 12 people. And it's like, you know, so many vote for Trump and, and so many vote for Biden. And we're like a rural, what is it, red and blue. We're like a rural red area. So it's like nine people voted for Trump and three people voted for Biden. Well, all my son knew, all I told him, he's like, what happens if, if this guy wins? And I'm like, well, there's going to be riots, but there's going to be in big cities, and so we don't have to worry about that here, but we need to pray for those people. And what happens if this guy wins? I said, you're going to have to keep wearing a mask like the rest of your life. It's kind of, that was kind of the election in a nutshell to my seven-year-old, you know? So he goes, I don't know who voted. I don't know who these three people are. He stands up in class, the teacher said with his mask on. I don't know who you three people are, but you must want to wear a mask the rest of your life. Like, eh, that's not totally everything that's going on in the election, but that, you know, it's kind of, so, but I'm having this conversation with my kids, with kids in our youth group at our church, with, with kids that come to camp saying, listen, opposition is coming in your lifetime. Like you're going, if you confess Jesus as Lord, proclaim the gospel, advance the kingdom that Jesus advanced. We are moments in the line of history, in the timeline of history, we are moments away from, in our culture, being persecuted for that. And up until about two or three years ago, people would always preach this and say, hey, listen, we may not see this in our lifetime, but one day there may be persecution in America. No, 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 you're going to see it in your lifetime. You're going to see it in the next eight to ten years. Where if you preach a biblical view of sexuality, a biblical view of the sanctity of life, an exclusive view as Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to heaven except through him, you preach those things, you will be punished and penalized and possibly incarcerated, if not fined, for doing those things. That's persecution. People make fun of you for loving Jesus. That's not really persecution. I don't care if people make fun of me. People make fun of me all the time because I'm a big, dumb hick. Like you, gotta, you learn to live with that, right? But when people legitimately persecute you for your faith in Jesus, it's going to mean you lose something. Something's taken away from you. It could be material or financial. It could be your freedom. That's going to happen in y'all's lifetime. It's going to happen sooner rather than later. 
unless there's a massive move of God to bring revival to the hearts of our people. But here's what I want you to hang on to. And maybe only a handful of us will remember this moment in history. When the opposition comes, the gospel will not be suppressed. It will only accelerate and advance the spread of the gospel. Because when the gospel is oppressed, it explodes and grows. We give you some examples. Roman Empire, first century. From the time Jesus dies, there are less than 120 faithful followers, but there are 500 eyewitnesses to his resurrection. 100 years later, it is estimated that over a quarter of a million people have put their faith and their trust in Jesus, but at the same time, tens of thousands have been killed for professing faith in Jesus. In other words, in the first century, a bunch of people die for following Jesus, and the gospel spreads like wildfire. The gospel spreads. I'll give you another example. Modern-day China. In 1981, it was estimated that there were about a million believers in China. A million believers, a million Christ followers in communist China. It is estimated now, 30-something years later, 40, almost 40 years later. So in less than four decades, one million has turned into over 100 million. But tens of thousands, in fact, some would think possibly hundreds of thousands have been killed for their faith in Jesus. What happens is when you squeeze a people who follow Jesus, the gospel flourishes. We don't have to be afraid of that. We don't have to be afraid of an advancing gospel and the building of a kingdom that is not of this world that when the opposition comes and they tell us we can't preach Jesus and they tell us we can't claim the exclusivity of Christ, that means we can't say that Jesus is the only way, that we're going to preach the gospel unadulterated, purified by the word, unfiltered through our lips. We're going to proclaim what Jesus proclaimed and the world is going to either hate us or they're going to line up, confess faith in Jesus and follow him. But in the end, the kingdom of Jesus will prevail. And opposition may come in your life and we'll be okay with that. Because Jesus told his disciples, he's like, in that moment, I'll give you what you need. So let's see what that looks like. When the opposition comes, you'll have what you need. Verses five through seven. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who are of the high priestly family. Those are the dudes that killed Jesus, by the way. Same dudes that killed Jesus. They're like, the guys that killed Jesus, let's take these guys to them. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? The, these are the big dogs of their religion, the big dogs of the temple. They're the religious elite. And so they begin to conspire and begin to interrogate. They're the guys that had a murder conspiracy against Jesus. And now they're doing the same thing with these guys. Verse eight, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers of the people and elders. I want you to notice he's filled with the Holy Spirit because when difficult times come, God's people have the strength and the power that they need that is provided to them by the Spirit of God. When you are tempted, when you're persecuted, when you're ridiculed, when you're made fun of, for Jesus' sake, he will give you exactly what you need in that moment to stand firm for the gospel. And so Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happens is anytime someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, then when persecution comes or opportunity comes, much will be made of Jesus. This is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit advances the cause of Christ. The Holy Spirit professes Jesus through the mouths of his servants. If you are around a person who is really and truly spirit-filled and spirit-led, then they're going to be all about Jesus. See, Jesus' people are all about Jesus. Like that. 
we're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to care about Jesus. We want others to know about Jesus. When, when, when persecution comes, we're going to point people to Jesus. I mean, that's what Peter and John, these guys do. They point people to Jesus. They're like, it's all about Jesus, man. Let's talk about Jesus. Now, in verses 8 down to 12, what Peter and John are going to do, they've already preached a sermon. Now they're going to give a public defense. They're going to give a defense. I'll tell you a cool courtroom moment because court, courtroom's intense. I've got a couple of courtroom experiences in my life. I, I shared some of them last year when we, uh, I don't remember if it was fall retreat or winter swell, we talked about Romans and we talked about being justified, which is when you have to stand legally before a judge. And I remember uh, we were in Uganda. So Snowbird has missionaries in Uganda, East Africa, and South Sudan, East Africa, and Togo, West Africa, and some other places in the world, Honduras and India. Anyway, we're in Uganda, and my two youngest children are adopted. They're Ugandan-born. So we had, to go in, we had to go to a court in Uganda. Y'all, I've been to court in America. I've been to court before I met Jesus. We won't talk about that today. <laughs> and I've been to court for doing stupid stuff. Like driving a car without a license plate on it. You can't do that. It's got to be insured and tagged. I'm like, who knew? Apparently everybody, including the policeman, it stopped me. <laughs> that cost a lot of money. I've been to court to do jury duty. That was awesome. They give you $13 and you don't have to go to work that day. You go sit in court. It was awesome. 13 bucks for $5.92. For less than $6, you can eat at Main Street Burgers in Murphy, which is one block from the courthouse. You still have seven bucks in your pocket when it's all said and done. It's an awesome experience. Just wait till you grow all the way to adulthood. I mean, you're almost there, I know. When you get jury duty, you'll hear people be like, oh, I got jury duty. I get jury duty. I'm like, that's right. That's what's up. Put me on the bench. So you go in there. There's about as many people as in this room right now in the courtroom. And they dr basically draw names out of a hat. It's the craziest thing. And they, and they pick 12 people. And you're the jury. And you go up there. And they got this little box up in the courtroom. It's, they call it a box. But it's two rows of six seats. Have you seen this in the movies? You ever wonder who those people are? They're just folks, just random folks. That dude flips cheeseburgers. That guy changes oil and tires for a living. That girl's a school teacher. That dude's a nurse. Like, they're just random people from society that come and they sit on the jury. So they call me up. They're like, so I get called. There's like 200 of us in there. 12 names get called. I get called. I was like, I should go buy a lottery ticket like today. They're picking me out of all these people. So I go up there, sit down in a little booth. And the attorney comes up. There's like prosecuting attorney and the other guy, defendant. No, it wasn't that kind of court. It was where one person's suing another person. That's what it was, I think. Anyway, the one attorney comes up there and he's like, are any of the jurors, able, do any of the jurors feel like you could not hear objectively a case about someone being injured in an auto accident? And I was like, no, nah, man, that's cool. I thought we was going to have like mass murder serial killer case. I was like, this is going to be awesome. It's really about some dude that had a fender bender and got his neck hurt or something. So I'm like, okay, that's cool. I can do it. So then he starts going around and he's like, you and you and you. And he says, have any of you ever had a family member injured severely or killed in a car wreck? Well, I did. I had a couple of family members that have been killed in car wrecks, like a, a great grandmother and then a brother-in-law. So I'm like, eh. I got a, yeah, I did. He's like, who's that? Well, my brother-in-law was a state trooper that got killed not far from here about 15 years ago. So it's like a high-profile case. I was like, 
Anthony Cogdell's my brother-in-law, and he's like, oh, juror number six, you're excused. It's like, man, I walked out so defeated. You know, I thought I was going to get to be on the jury. Why? Because at that point, he did not feel like I could objectively, like he felt like if I listened to the case that I would be like siding to one side. You see what I'm saying? So you need someone that's going to be very objective to do this. Well, it's a, the, the courtroom is a, I remember it's just a really intense place. So anyway, back to Africa. Okay, so we're in Africa. We got to go in front of a judge. He is a Ugandan Supreme Court justice. Their court system is different than ours. We go up in front of the judge. Well, he's a devout Muslim and our attorney, she says, all right, now listen, she's a Ugandan lady. And she says, this judge, she says, you need to understand that in the Islamic world, in this part of the world, Women do not have the same rights as men. They are not regarded in the same manner as men. They are not respected the way men are. This judge is going to be demeaning to myself. She's talking, the attorney, to myself and to Little. That's my wife. My wife's Little, the girl that plays drums. Okay? It's like she's gonna be, he's going to be demeaning to Little. He's probably not going to confront you, but he's going to try to make Little break in the courtroom. I'm like, what does that mean, make her break? He's like, he's going to try to make her trip up, say something. We're trying to win this case to get these two kids, get this judge to give us guardianship of these two kids in this Ugandan court. And so there's this moment of tension where he calls her up to the stand and he looks at her and he says, he's big old burly dude, big deep voice and he's and a really cool accent. And he says, I went to holiday that's what they call vacation i went to holiday in tanzania down by the sea that means i went to the beach in tanzania for vacation that's the way they say it i went to holiday in tanzania by the sea and i brought back some large seashells and i put those seashells on my mantle in my house and he said now when guests come over i show them the seashells these are my treasures from tanzania and he said now all you want to do is you want to take these two Ugandan kids back to America and you want to show them off to everybody like they're your trophies from Uganda, just like I have trophies from Tanzania. That's all you, and he looked at Little and he said, that's all you want to do. Well, our attorney, she's so freaked out because the culture is you don't, like a woman doesn't speak back to a man in that kind of authority. Well, Little ain't from that culture, you know what I'm saying? She's from McClellan Creek. Up there, women swing axes and like and shoot deer and it's like like it's a different world, man. All right, boss, we crossed the ocean here. Like you got to understand. So she, I never forget, man. She leaned. I remember she leaned her knuckles onto the table like this. She's missing this finger, so it's kind of funny looking when she leans on that one. She she smashed it off. It was an accident. It's a funny story now. You have to ask her about it. She's a drummer. So she leans like this and she leans into this judge and our attorney's like she's sitting like this with her head down she won't look up at him and she's calling him stuff like your your grace not your highness your grace yes your grace yes your grace yes your lordship and little leans over me in court and says i ain't calling him grace or lordship Mm -mm." i was like no calm down mama it's gonna be all right we get out of here just just follow the script (laughs) so she so he says that she leans up on the table with her hands her knuckles like this and she says don't compare my kids to your seashells. They my kids. They are not seashells. 
And then she stood up and went like this. And I was like, oh, we're going to jail. Because it's not like over there, it ain't, they don't follow the same rule. The U.S. Constitution does not protect you. He did not swear an oath to uphold the laws of America and the U.S. Constitution, you know. And so I'm like, he's going to throw us in jail. We're going to have to raise a bunch of money. Anyway, that dude threw his head back. He started laughing. And he thought it was actually cool that she stood up to him. It was really funny, but it was like kind of broke the tension. But I remember there was that moment where it was so tense. So these guys are standing in this tribunal. These are men who ran away. Peter ran away from Jesus on the night that he was arrested. And now they're standing before the very people who killed Jesus. And those guys say, what do you got to say for yourself? And you know what they do? They not only proclaim Jesus, but they point their finger right at that guy and they say, you killed him. You can kill us, but we're not afraid of you. And no matter what you do, the only way you will stop us from proclaiming Jesus is to kill us. So get to killing or let us go. That's intense, isn't it? That's an intense moment. But that's the kind of courage and clarity Jesus will give you in that moment. It all comes down to verse 12 and we'll be done. So they said, so, so verse 9, if we're being examined today concerning the good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this, has been he- this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So they're like, I don't know what the big deal is. People come to the temple to pray, and God answers prayer and performs a miracle, and in such a visible way, this guy is now standing before you well. Why are y'all upset about that? Why can't y'all be happy about that? I'll tell you why you can't be happy about it, because we did it in Jesus' name, and that makes you mad. That's basically what he says. It's awesome. And then he calls them to, like, submit and follow Jesus. And he says, verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. In verse 12, it's our main verse. This is the main point of the whole thing it's the key verse of the whole passage maybe the key verse to the entire bible y'all acts 4 12 and there is salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved salvation is only in jesus it is in christ alone there's no other way going to church doesn't make you a christian Having a Christian mother, father, grandparents, that doesn't make you Christian. Salvation is in the name of Jesus alone. Some people will say this is narrow. There should be more flexibility. Some people say it's too exclusive. Some some people say it's intolerant. But most important for us is to understand that this teaching is narrow. It is exclusive, but most importantly, it's true. This is the truth. The gospel of Jesus is the truth. And to speak the truth is always the right thing to do, but never more so than when it comes to telling people about Jesus. Speak the truth is always the right thing to do, but never more so than when it comes to telling people about Jesus. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we might be saved. If you're not a Christian this morning, my prayer and invitation to you is to come to Jesus. Put your faith and your trust in him. Confess him as Lord. Call on the name of the Lord. If you're a Christian, we've got to get ready because persecution's coming. It's going to become more and more and more increasingly confrontational to say that you follow Jesus, to say that you believe the Bible, to say that you believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. We 
must be the light in a dark world. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. In other words, you bring flavor and, and you bring preservation and you bring light to a dark world if you proclaim the gospel. We can do it. You can do it. You can be on mission for the gospel in your school. Look for opportunities to advance the gospel, to share Jesus with others. And maybe it's a simple conversation with a friend. You're probably not going to have a situation where you're going to stand in front of thousands of people at your school and preach the gospel of Jesus. But you're going to have opportunities to have a conversation and to live it out and to flesh it out and to be on mission and to know this, that when the gospel is squeezed and oppressed, it flourishes and it brings life and growth. So in one sense, we're ready for it. We're ready for that because Jesus is going to do a lot in your lifetime. And the world is going to change in your lifetime. And you can be a part of that to help build the kingdom of God. Amen. Let's pray.